Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my guest is Jessica Lazelle Cannon, and we will be talking about her new book, The Proactive Caregiver, Stop Reacting to Life, Start Living Proactively. The Proactive Caregiver will inspire caregivers surrounded by the darkness of fear, anxiety, and overwhelm with the light of acceptance and empowerment. It will encourage you to be a healthier caregiver and teach you to appreciate the role model that you have become as a caregiver for your children, causing a cultural shift. This book is for caregivers of all ages with loved ones living with dementia or suspecting behavioral changes. Jessica grew up aspiring to be a creative writer. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Business Management and a Bachelor of Science in Accounting with a Certified Public Accountant License. Spending more than 20 years as an accountant, Jessica received the calling to step away from the corporate world to become her mother's full-time caregiver. For more information, you can visit her website, which is www.jessicalizellcannon.com. Okay, folks, I'd like to go ahead and bring Jessica into the show. Good day, Jessica. Good day. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Caregiving is a is one of the topics I think we can't talk enough about. So uh, oh, I'm glad I agree. And, uh, yeah, and I'm really happy for you to share your story with us. So um, let's start with, um, you know, the show is bringing inspiration to earth. So what was your inspiration? What motivated you to write this book? Well, it was definitely a personal transformation for sure. I stepped into the role of caregiver uh, reluctantly at first, I was very angry, very angry with my mother because I blamed her for a lot of her own downfall, thinking that this was, she could have taken better care, she could have done these things differently. I had a very one-sided view. But the more I stepped in to care for her and the closer I got with her, the more I started to see a different version of who this person that I called mom for so many years, who she really was and what she was actually struggling with. And so it it really started to teach me more compassion for uh, people struggling with mental health issues. Um, My mother lives with bipolar disorder in addition to mixed dementia. And so there was a lot of issues happening with us and a lot of dysfunctional family problems. But becoming a caregiver really gave me a different perspective on what it really means to live with these mental health challenges. So it inspired me to write the book because the more caregivers I met, 
the more I heard similar stories and similar problems that I was experiencing, and I wanted to put a voice to that and try and see that if it was possible to change how we view dementia, how we view bipolar, how we view mental health altogether, and then what we can do to prevent this from happening more and more as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. I was going through reading your book. There were many um, examples um, that I experienced being a caregiver that um, you know, are very common. But but those who provide the, that service um, sometimes just aren't aware. I mean, until you're in <laughs> right in the thick of it, um, a lot of things just don't really come to. You. I mean, it, it, it's a it, it's a, a surprise sometimes surprising unfolding of events, but um, now you were CPA, as I mentioned in the introduction, and mm-hmm. so what, um, as a CPA, um, what were some of the skills that you used for that profession that, you know, transferred and were um, helpful with caregiving? Great question. I definitely didn't see it in the beginning, but in hindsight, I realized stepping in with the mindset of a CPA, I was already used to reconciling accounts and balancing budgets. And looking at it that way, I couldn't help but to apply that same mindset to my mother and how she was living And because I did step in to not only handle her day-to-day routines, but her financial issues as well. And as I went through that, that's when I really started to see someone, it's not just someone who didn't, wasn't aware of how to create a budget and follow it. It was the really huge pitfalls that were affecting her financially that made the difference. And so as I started to take my experience as a CPA with being able to research and reconcile and budget and do the trends, that's when I started applying that same kind of mindset to my mom and going back to her historical medical information and starting to try to build that trend to see what was happening over the years and when did it actually start falling off the wheels, so to speak. um, So it helped me look at it financially just because that's the way I thought things through mostly. But that financial aspect helped me to see the emotional aspect behind her decisions as well. Yeah. Now, you you mentioned, you know, in addition to having the, the dementia, the Alzheimer's aspect, um, there was the bipolar um, right. you know, condition that kind of added to it. And, and you said mixed dementia. What, what, what did you mean by that? Right. So, so many people are aware of Alzheimer's and dementia in general, but what happens with people like my mother is dementia is so complex. She started out with what was called early Alzheimer's. At least that's what they were able to identify early on because she, when this all started, she was in her mid-40s. Excuse me. And as time went on, she went from early Alzheimer's to vascular dementia and ultimately got the third diagnosis of frontal temporal dementia. And so 
that's really um, difficult to just call it, oh, she has Alzheimer's or she has vascular dementia because over time it's basically how her brain was deteriorating and how it was breaking down. It was like a little roadmap of what dementia was doing to her brain. Yeah, that certainly, I'm sure, complicated things. Um, and, and that seems to be um, the multiple types of, um, you know, disease um, can really complicate when, things when it comes to treatment. And, and, and uh, I noticed when you, in your book, when you were talking about having to um, give your mother her meds, you know, that, that, that mm-hmm. was a, a challenging um, activity twice a day, you know, morning and, and night. Um, so, so it, it, you know, I, I don't think um, people often recognize the fact that, you know, you, you have basically a patient who um, you have to educate every single time that, uh, you know, you give them medication or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. And it's, it's challenging as for the caregivers because what works one day did not work for me the next day, or even what worked in the morning didn't work for me again by the evening. So it gets to be very frustrating. And I know there comes a point in time where it, we don't stop as caregivers. We want to keep educating them because we think that's what's going to help. But when you understand what's really happening to their brain, the education only frustrates everyone involved. So it's really difficult. And even now, my mother is in stage six, and she's starting to refuse medications more often. Mm. And we're back to that frustration and difficulty because everyone else understands what it means for her not to have her heart medication, for example, or her antidepressants. But she thinks it's fine and it's okay. And that can be really frustrating day in and day out to deal with. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's, um, you know, in addition to the, you know, the day-to-day care, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the medications is just part of, of the puzzle for sure. Um, now, you in your book you talk about, uh, the title is, is um, being a proactive caregiver. So, Tell us exactly what you mean by being proactive. Definitely. So when I stepped into the role of essential caregiver early on, I was always reacting to situations, whether it was in her home and cleaning house and doing helping her with chores or in the doctor's office. I was always reacting to something and, quite honestly, in a bad way because not understanding what was happening my reactions were emotional. I was reacting from a place of coming from past unresolved problems or issues, even as a teenager with my mother. And so those arguments created bad situations and just added more fuel to a awkward fire to begin with. And so as I started to really come back to that mindset as an accountant, one of the things we would do is, The projections, how do we stop this from happening? How do we increase a certain result that we're looking for? How do we decrease certain things that are happening? So the idea of being proactive was applied to this as well. Just as I would do in a business to be proactive, 
I couldn't help but to do the same with my mother, to plan in advance, whether it was financially or for her medical or even just downtime for us to try to have somewhat of a relationship that wasn't always arguing and bickering. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. And, you know, when that happens, um, quite often the person who um, has Alzheimer's or dementia, they can be um, pretty um, argumentative (laughs) or or, or not not compassionate. I mean, so it's, you know, it can be difficult not to take things personally, especially if it's your parent. Oh, yes. That I used to look at her before I could understand what was happening. I used to look at her and think, how could you be so mean? I'm here trying to help you, but all you do is hurt my feelings deliberately. But when you begin to understand, again, what is, what's happening to the brain and why she was acting or saying certain things at the time she was doing that, it made sense eventually, and I had to put on this uh, thicker skin, so to speak, where I had to just let it roll off my back and realize she doesn't know what she's saying. She doesn't have the empathy to understand that those words hurt or her pushing me away makes it difficult for me to care for her. It really is challenging to want to be in that situation and not want to walk away and just say, fine, I give up. Yeah, yeah, that, that can really be um, a challenge. Now, when you mentioned preparation, you know, and kind of projecting ahead, trying to prepare so you could be proactive versus reactive, um, in, in your book, um, you talk about uh, caregiver compliance. Um, and yeah. the legal documents and that kind of thing that um, are important. And, you know, those obviously are critical when it comes to being proactive. So um, I, I wouldn't – could you please now tell us um, about, you know, like those particular documents and kind of how you um, came to indicate you know, that those are really important to do in order to be proactive. Definitely. And these documents are ones that I highly recommend every caregiver, if they haven't already attained them, to actually find an elder law attorney in their area and get these documents as soon as possible. So the caregiver compliance means uh, having things like your power of attorney, which is different from a medical power of attorney. One handles the estate in its entirety. The other one handles medical only. The next document they need to have is the HIPAA, which is something I didn't realize. You know, I could take my mother to the doctor's office and make sure she was on time for appointments, schedule the next one, help her pay for the existing appointment, But when it came to the doctor being able to give me information, medical information of the appointment that took place, I had to have a signed HIPAA in place, which, fine, if you go to the doctor's office and have it done, you can do that. But then you're at the mercy of every single doctor's office. And when I say every single, we were going to every doctor that you can imagine head to toe 
and you fill out these documents everywhere you go, as opposed to having one initially taken care of while they're still cognizant of what they're signing for and who they're allowing that information to be shared with. And then you have this document that you can take and give to every single doctor or even hospital for that matter, whether it's inpatient or outpatient care. It's done, and it's done in advance before they are deemed incompetent later down the road. Um, you also want to, in that same vein, also want to get their legal guardianship. Have that declared early on. Even if you don't have to go through a legal situation of declaring a guardianship, if they are able to declare that and who they want and who they don't want more specifically early mm -hmm. on, then you can have this, again, done, set it aside, and when you need it, it is already there instead of having to go through the court system. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it is important, you know, to have those handy and, and ready to share. Now, in a, in, in a couple of cases you mentioned, you know, the doing it when they are uh, aware of what it is that they're doing. Um, in your particular case, um, was your when you got those particular documents, was your mother um, in a state where you know she could you know sign that, or, or was there, or was she you know did she have symptoms enough to to maybe require I don't know additional steps? So thankfully, I was aware of what was happening and what was needing to be done. I was able to get those documents created, and she was able to sign her wishes um, early on. She was probably in her stage three, going into stage four at that time, but she was still cognizant enough that she knew what she was signing for because the fifth document that's needed is the advanced directive to physicians. So a lot of people know that as a DNR. And that was something that was mm -hmm. very important to her to sign early on. And so she was able to make sure that her wishes were carried forward. And I'm so grateful I had that before she entered her stage five and into six. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the DNR, I have another story. My father um, was in the hospital, and he had a DNR. Um, that was signed. He gave me a copy. He gave a copy to his, his current wife at the time, and he gave a copy to the doctor. <laughs> and when it came to that particular point for us to, um, you know, in, invoke that in, in the sense of, of mm -hmm. you know, not, um, you know, doing extraordinary, um, kinds of, um, activities for his wife, none of us could find it. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a nightmare. I mean, it was one of those cases where, we all knew what he wanted, and yeah. none of us could bring out. So not only do you have those forms, but make sure you put them somewhere where you know that you can get them. Um, because it, did, it took all three of us, it took all three of us together in order to, you know, agree that that was a, a course of action. Of course, of course. And so that's, that's another area that not only getting the documents, that's the first challenge, but once you get them, you're able to set the originals aside in a safe or a safety deposit box, for example, and then have several copies. I had a copy on my refrigerator. I had a copy in my vehicle. I had a copy um, with her 
uh, medical records so that no matter where I was, and I even carried a copy in my purse so that, God forbid, walking around and anything happened, I had it to hand to them because I was forewarned by my cousin that when my uncle was in a similar situation, when it came time for EMTs to approach the house, uh, they actually had to have the form before they could turn his defibrillator down to allow the heart to stop. Mm. And so usually if something happens, which we never really plan on these random emergencies happening, but having that form ready and nearby to just say, here you go, here it is, it saves a lot of stress and anxiety in the moment. Yeah, very much so. Now, um, you indicated that when it came time for you to um, become uh, knowledgeable, in, you know, like what could my mother have done to prevent this or to minimize this? Um, so in, in that particular process, um, what did you discover regarding um, the idea of, you know, lifestyle versus, you know, genetics as being right. um, particularly um, important? One of the things that started to stand out was her daily routine. And as I stepped into, I started out part-time, and then I went full-time, and then I moved her in with me. So I was really able to see her day-to-day routines. And these routines were how much she was sleeping, what she was eating during the day, how much water was she drinking, how much, how many sweets was she eating, and what form of sweets was this from fruit or was it from processed so i really started to look into everything that was affecting her moods and a lot of it came back to lifestyle it was so much related to how much she ate what she ate what time of day she ate it and if she had a good day with food and exercise on top of that then the next day or that evening she would have a good night of rest and it started off Mm. the next day. If she woke up from a good night of rest, then she had a good day of eating and a good attitude towards exercise and it just continued to flow that way. And then when we had those moments where she slipped and um, dropped back and not having a good night of rest, which meant not eating well, it kind of kicked off this routine of where – if she slept good, she ate good. If she ate good, she slept good. And it was like, it reminded me of when I was raising my sons, um, keeping their gut cleared so they weren't constipated, because that added to the moodiness. But mm-hmm. all of this started to show me that her lifestyle was what contributed to the early onset Alzheimer's and the vascular dementia. And that's when I started to realize if I didn't change my lifestyle habits, then this could possibly become my story. And if I could change my lifestyle habits, then it didn't matter what my genetic makeup was. And so in the process of trying to figure it out for myself, I actually started to uh, see a nutritionist. And where I was really against having my genes tested for dementia, because I felt it was my responsibility to take care of my body regardless. It was mm-hmm. one of the 
areas are confirmed. It's not that I have genes that say I carry Alzheimer's, possibly the genes, the, there's a, roughly 13 of them, um, that I carry any of those genes that this could possibly become my story. It was the fact that I have celiac disease, and that came from my mother. And so knowing this now, I know what I should or shouldn't eat to protect my gut, which also protects my brain. My mother was aware of this, but kept saying, oh, we're all going to die anyway. And so she disregarded Mm -hmm. a lot of the advice she was given. Yeah, that's that's a, a tough one. So would you say then just the the idea of healthy nutrition and sleep, just basically taking care of one's own health, is the um, is one of the the best ways to um, help stymie that kind of result? Right. So when I was growing up, I wasn't taught how to protect my brain and body. And so that comes from having a healthier lifestyle. But what looks healthy to me may not look healthy Mm -hmm. to you. And one of the areas that is finally being talked about from researchers is that they are identifying how much stress affects us, how our daily habits make a difference. And really trying to stop the misconception that dementia is genetic because it really comes down to inflammation and what that does to our body and how that creates the environment within our body that causes dementia in the first place. Yeah, yeah, very important. Um, Jessica, we're about halfway through the show, so I want to take just a a quick 90-second break. And then when we come back, um, I want to talk about the idea in your book, you talked about um, reflection, you know, and, and you know, taking, making sure one has time to reflect uh, a character, yeah. um, and and how that's important and can be more, we can make it more effective. So when we come back from break, I want to touch on that next. Okay. Sounds great. Great. So everyone, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us. And I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc., and we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. 
Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Jessica Cannon, and we're talking about her new book, The Proactive Caregiver, Stop Reacting to Life, Start Living Proactively. And again, you can find out more by visiting her website, which is www.jessicalizellcannon.com, and that's Jessica, L-I-Z-E-L-C-A-N-N-O-N.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Jessica. That sounds so nice. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So, reflection. Tell tell us, you know, kind of how that particular activity, you know, became important for you and, and important enough that you feel that you wanted to include it in your book. Yes, it is incredibly important because this is the type of practice that helps with that healthy lifestyle. It helps you reflect on becoming your own detective in your life, observing your habits, and why are you drawn to these habits, and what is actually causing the feelings or the reactions you're having with your loved ones in certain situations, or why are some situations more hurtful than others? A lot of people may have immediate responses to that. Their minds may already be going to um, their adolescence and how they grew up and in certain times that they had bad communication with their parents or hurtful communication. And so these areas, they get tucked away as we grow and we are pushed into the survival mode, so to speak, where we go to school, we graduate, we get a job, we start dealing with bosses, and in my situation, I would deal with a boss that resembled someone from my past that hurt my feelings or um, Mm. broke my heart in a certain area. And so that reflective, reflective time is something that if we can learn to do this on a regular basis, it may not start out daily. Um, It could be just on your weekends to reflect on the, the previous week. It will help us better understand our daily habits and why we are called to it or drawn to it or um, our cravings even, for example. And it helps to bring light to certain areas that need change in a lot of respects. So understanding my actions over time made reflecting a little bit more of an enjoyable process. At first it was painful because it was making Mm -hmm. me look at things that I didn't want to. But after time passed and I got used to the habit, I looked forward to it. And whenever things happened with my mother, I'd say, okay, what is it about this moment that is upsetting me so much? Why, You know, picking it apart and trying Mm -hmm. to take it in piecemeal instead of this huge situation that I just want to run away from and I don't want to deal with her. What, you know, breaking those details down to more piecemeal, I could actually understand it better. And that's what reflection yeah. does for others, is just really helping us understand the who, the what, the when, the why, and then moving forward in a more positive way. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned selecting a, a reflection process that works for you. Um, can, you can you tell us, I mean, Examples of, of different types of processes, you know, for, for people. Sure. Sure. So one of the, the processes that I 
started to do was getting outside and making my space. I have a what I call my meditation tree um, in my backyard, and I would put my special comfortable chair so that I could have a moment where I was my both feet on the ground, barefoot in most cases, and I wanted to connect to the energy from the earth. I wanted to just let all the worries of the world just kind of mentally on the outside. And I walked into my room outside, basically, and created that space where I can just let all the worries set aside and then pick them apart one at a time. Today's worry was mom will not take her medication. Why is this upsetting me? You know, or um, tomorrow's worry became... My child is not doing well in school, and what's causing this problem? Uh, the next day was something that was more effective to me. Why is this um, upsetting me so much? Well, it's a broken heart issue that this person resembles someone from your past, and you're being you're getting triggered by their their physical appearance, the tone of their voice, maybe their mannerisms, and those special time sitting underneath my meditation tree gave me that moment to just block out the world and focus on what was upsetting me, what was causing me to push away from anyone, and in particularly my mother a lot of times, on how she dealt with issues when we were growing up. So that started outside, but if I couldn't do it outside, then eventually it became driving in my car. I would turn off the radio and just drive and let the thoughts kind of sink in and and acknowledge what was surfacing, what was coming up in that silence, because silence is sometimes really difficult to sit in. Yeah, or the shower. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing how many times, you know, that water flowing over the body um, yeah. can stimulate reflection. It is amazing because that was one of the times that it never failed. I always had a pen and paper and I could jot ideas down and, but the moment I stepped into the shower, <laughs> that's when ideas would come to mind. And it, whether it was a good thing that I wanted to write and add in the book or if it was an emotion that at that moment in time, it was something that needed to be felt, heard, experienced. And a lot of times it was the time of being in the shower that it was my private moment. So if it did, if that reflection struck that nerve, that emotional nerve, I was able to cry in the shower and just kind of let that emotion out and just purge, if you will, at that time. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, in your book, you you mentioned at one point that – about the sense of of being of feeling loneliness. And then you said that although I have not been entirely alone, I feel lonelier than I've ever felt in my entire life. Um, you know, it, it seems that that particular sense of loneliness, you know, even with someone there, um, is, is a common um, feeling that caregivers experience. So can you tell us a little bit just about that particular experience that you had and what did you do to um, kind of minimize that lonely feeling? Loneliness is something 
that's very hard to express. But the moment I felt it was, ironically, when I had people around me. And I know that sounds odd because when some people think about being lonely, they think that person has been alone, like physically alone for too long. They've withdrawn from society or withdrawn from family, and they're alone. But in my case, I wasn't alone. My mother was with me every day, throughout the day, and in the evenings. And so I was never alone. But the conversations, they weren't meaningful. The conversations that we used to have, talking about life and our children and our dreams, or even laughing about some of the more pleasant times. It wasn't always dysfunctional. And so when the meaningful conversations went away, and it was just about the daily routine, taking a shower, taking the medications, having the meals ready, let's go exercise, let's take a quick walk, it just made me feel lonely because I wanted Mm -hmm. someone who could understand what I was going through. And so when I had my spouse and I had my children and I had other family members and friends and going to church and having people around me, I still felt lonely because I felt that they wouldn't understand what I was going through. And that's when I realized in a lot of my reflection time that I was in a state of mourning. And that loneliness is something that you have to allow. You have to feel through it because there was nothing I could do to avoid it. And there was definitely not enough. Well, I probably could have had plenty of alcohol to drown the loneliness, but that wasn't wasn't the positive approach. And that definitely wasn't uh, the direction I wanted to go in. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it can be challenging. And, and it's, it's one of those things to, um, to, to be aware of and, and to try and, um, create circumstances that can alleviate that loneliness. Now, in one, in the area we were talking about reflection, um, you also indicated that one, uh, a way to, you know, be more effective is to be your own hero. You know, to inspire yeah. self-acceptance and live intentionally. Um, tell us about that because it, that seems to be um, like an internal perspective shift, you know, for, for for folks to make in order to, you know, inspire that self-acceptance. Yes, and that is when I was finally realizing and reaching that point in that transformational process that I could be my own hero, that looking towards my sisters or my spouse or someone else, even my therapist to an extent, to be the uh, knight in shining armor or the savior that would help me and whisk me away from all of this um, caregiver burnout and turmoil that was happening, it dawned on me that it wasn't their responsibility. It wasn't going to be their approach or their beliefs or their love in most cases that was going to save me. And now this is not to say that I needed to become more self-reliant because that's also a little bit of a trap we fall into. It was just acknowledging who I was, what I was capable of, what I had been chosen for and why 
I had been chosen for it. And so understanding that I could be my own hero and do or say or feel or provide what I expected another hero to do for me, then I could do that myself, was very empowering. Yeah, yeah. That's that's important. I mean, it's important to feel empowered. I mean, to be able to recognize that within yourself you have the ability and skills to change that situation. And, and um, you know, a lot of people, especially when it comes to caregiving, um, it can be um, – it can, it can just be a challenge, you know, because you're you're in a in a situation where um, the person you're caring for, you know, isn't empowered. You know, I mean, that, that they're they're in a situation where they're you know having to be cared for, and and in many cases, um, you know, with people who are particularly like independent um, or you know, have for their whole life been independent. Um, you know, kind of self-starters, you know, all of those things can go by the wayside. And then, you know, when they're gone for that person, um, it becomes, it becomes very frustrating. And, and then, you know, so it can even be more difficult. It, absolutely. And that's where when my sisters and I had our, um, falling out or our moment of let's agree to disagree and we went our separate ways, Realizing that that safety net and that support network, the family support network, was no longer there, and that meant my childhood heroes were gone as well. So that yeah. it is, it is a change, and it is somewhat of a, I guess I can call it the caregiver maturity, when you hmm. step into that reality of, I can be my own hero. I don't need to be rescued, and therefore I no longer feel like a victim in this situation. It is a very, very good switch of mindset at that point. Yeah, yeah, very much. Now, I I did a a caregiving book, The Heart and Soul of Caregiving, with stories from different listeners who had contributed to their caregiving stories. And and one gentleman... um, you know his particular his whole story centered around the hero's journey you know and, and the mm-hmm. fact that um that one you know the the whole journey of becoming becoming a hero um is um is part of the process so um yeah. now with your mom you know her her first name was Lizelle, correct um right. meaning god's god's promise um what what how would you describe her essence, you know, of who your mom is? Wow. My mother is a beautiful fighter, and she definitely is a survivor in her mind and in soul. Um, a definite philanthropist at heart, and she's always connected with others. The essence of her, you see that in her students over the years that she has, she was an ESL teacher, which is English as a second mm-hmm. language, and you would see that in her teacher, her students, the 
the sparkle in their eyes that she brought to them. And so passing on that survival mentality to her students and letting them know that they were, they could be their own hero themselves and to fight for their lives. That essence was there until it wasn't. Um, yeah. But that's what I had to hang on to of who she was and still, in most cases, tries to be. Mm -hmm. I put her pictures throughout my studio so that I see who she was and that I'm reminded of the essence of what was there before. Yeah. And, and you know, and that is just so important, you know, because when you get, you know, bogged down in the um, the day-to-day difficulties, you know, and challenges. It can be sometimes easy to forget, you know, that that exactly. um, that that soul has an essence, and and um, you know what it, you know, and, and what it also does is that when that is gone, I think it just highlights for people um, the importance of that aspect of life. You know, I mean, it, it's, you know, when you have something and, and, you know, like you can go back and look at the pictures and, and you know, look at students and that kind of thing, you know, that easily, you know, reminds you of that. But the fact that it also being gone to a degree um, just highlights just, you know, just how important that is. Right, right. Because, and we, it's so easy to lose how important that is in the process. Yeah, yeah, it is. Now, we are coming up on the holidays. I mean, we're right in the middle of that particular <laughs> season. And in your book, you have a section on surviving the holidays and um, yeah. some with some questions for people to consider, um, you know, to avoid emotional landmines. So right. can you – would you mind sharing with us, you know, and for those listening, sure. what are some things to consider over this holiday season? Definitely. So these holiday seasons, and just bringing back in the concept of reflection, it is, if you haven't started, I want to ask you to start during this holiday season because the holidays oftentimes bring up those moody blues, the anticipation of what a holiday can be, what you want it to be, or what it's been before to you. Those are emotional traps that we can fall into if we're not prepared and ready for what's coming. So one of the things I speak to caregivers about on coping with the holidays is on their decorations, on how they do this. Um, not to add more stress in decorating. Um, is this for your need or are you doing this because you think this is what they need? Um, traveling to visit family is another area that oftentimes um, we Sometimes we dread that family visit, and we dread the travel to the family visit, but that dreading is something that is picked up by our loved ones living with dementia. So it comes across in behavior, in tone, in our um, actions, because as my mother reminded me growing up, actions do speak louder than words sometimes. Um, so we have to be mindful of how our our behavior is around our loved ones, mm -hmm. and if it's possible to avoid traveling, and especially if it's possible to avoid having them travel, 
that's better because a lot of times airplane travel, car travel, traveling by bus, however it is, you sometimes we forget how much they need those mental and physical breaks for bathroom breaks or just stretching their legs and just getting um, some fresh air. Being in a car or a plane for two, three, or four hours is actually depleting them of their energy that they need just for mental focus alone. So being able to go through these holidays and not adding these added physical stress and emotional stress, and then finding the areas that would actually bring joy, and that is, you know, with our holiday baking, and um, which re-engages those senses, gets the sense of smell going, which is one of the first and strongest sense we have, and so that may get the memories flowing again. If you're making um, baking items that were the favorites or meals that were the favorites in previous years, it's just an area where we can try to find joy in the holidays, but at the same time mm-hmm. being aware of the emotional depression or situational depression that can actually happen at this time of year. Yeah, very much so. And you're right, smells and, and music um, are often things that can help um, loved ones with dementia um kind of tie back to a time, you know, to, to a, a time when, you know, things were happier and, and they were, you know, experiencing, experiencing joy. Um, and now one of the, you had a, a wonderful um, suggestion and one of, one of them is, one of the questions was, do they still recognize family? And, you know, that, that happens, you know, there is that time. And, and one of your, um, you know, kind of ways to contact that was to have name tags. You know, simple as Absolutely. name tags on someone. You know, and I thought, you know, that I, that one stuck, stood out to me because it was something I had never thought of. But I have, you know, encountered many a folk who um, have that issue of the the of lack of recognition of, of family members. It would seem that 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 simple step would help. You know, would help the, the the person feel more comfortable. Absolutely, and it, it is very important because short-term memory is what goes first in many cases. And so, having that name tag, whether it's um, just a name or it's a cutesy little name and your favorite child or number one child, <laughs> your caregiver, whatever it is but a name to a face because for my mother, whenever she hadn't seen my husband in uh, quite some time and after moving out from living with us and into um, memory care, when my husband visited, she would stare at him and stare at him and just blink. And it was just that you could see it in her face that she was struggling to remember who that person is. And then when they have those name tags and there's, several people, his families grow over the years. You, your children get married, and their grandchildren get married, and there's all this, and then you have friends and neighbors, and there's all these family faces or new faces for them to be confused by, which creates irritability, and it also mm-hmm. creates that sense of feeling lost and confused. 
And you avoid that with yeah. just a simple name tag. I know. I, I just thought that was, you know, something so basic, but it can have such a dynamic effect on the um, the person with dementia as far as um, making them comfortable, helping them be comfortable with interactions with other people. And, exactly, um, and I would now, go one more step yes. further and say that you can put a name tag on restrooms or areas of the house, mm -hmm. their bedroom, because a lot of times when we take our family member home for the holidays to visit, they're in a new environment yet again, even mm -hmm. if it's, you know they've been there before, but holidays bring out the different decorations, which make hallways look different, which makes doorways to bathrooms look different even, and so if we name them bathrooms, I mean, it sounds so simple, and it sounds like something just basic, but they need the basic. Yeah, very much. Now, there was one other um, question, and there was one other topic in that particular one, and it was avoid asking, do you remember? Um, oh, yeah. Now, no, I did ask that from time to time from people, and I don't remember. It's like, do you remember when? It's like, no, I don't. <laughs> I, you know, I was just like, okay, you know, what, what's going on here? But, you know, but people remember different things, you know, and, and have different yeah. takes on things. But but can you, can you tell us, you know, obviously, you know, you're, you're testing someone's memory, but other than that, is right. there a way to – um, instead of asking the question, be able to get to the same topic, but without the question. Sure, sure. It, in this case, it's really just a matter of rephrasing it. So instead of asking them, do you remember when we used to, or do you remember so-and-so from down the street, instead of saying it in a question, rephrase it and say, I remember when, and then you share the memory. Telling a story. We all relate to a story. And it gives them the opportunity to um, listen in their own pace and see how much they're understanding, which you could see it in their eyes. And then they may go, oh, yeah, I remember when um, Betty used to come over from down the street and you guys used to play in the backyard for out. It gives them that opportunity to recall something instead of putting them on the spot. and feeling that moment of, because every time I did that to my mother in front of someone in the early years, it made her irritable. And then I didn't catch the tone and the tension between us until it was too late. And so I would apologize later, but I had already embarrassed her in front of the neighbor or someone else mm. in the family. So taking the time to just rephrase Instead of, do you remember, put it on you and say, I remember. And if they say, if they jump into that story, I remember when, and it's not exactly the way it happened, let it be. Just smile mm -hmm. and let it be their memory and say, I'm so glad you're here with me. I'm glad we're able to share these memories because that's the other part of it. Mm -hmm. Asking, do you remember, and then trying to correct them, that's not going to be helpful. It's always hurtful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 important to not have to have everything um, viewed your particular way. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, right. some right. you know details and and perspective and all that kind of thing. It's all subjective. So you know, in in some cases, you know, uh, just allowing the person to convey their experience, you know, or, or um, talk mm-hmm. about you know what 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 they remember. Um, I don't know. It just seems that that's the the, the to not only um, like hear them out and give them recognition for who they are, but also to give them you know validation in a way because you know for right. in many cases they they realize many cases they realize that you know something is wrong, something is not kind of working right, you know. So anytime that you can give them a sense of validation. Um, mm-hmm. would seem to just, uh, you know, contribute to a healthier interaction. Definitely. Because the one thing my mother would remind me is, I'm not a child, don't tell me what to do. So when I'm correcting her, because she can't remember mm-hmm. something, I'm treating her like a child. And that's not yeah. reinforcing her independence. It's not reinforcing her um feeling of being connected. Yeah, absolutely. Well, gosh, we're down to the end of the show, Jessica, but I, um, you indicated that you want to create a cultural shift. Um, so yes. tell us about, you know, that particular goal of yours. Right. This goal is my God-sized goal because as I have met more and more caregivers, I realize this is a very important need and we cannot dismiss this as dementia or just Alzheimer's or just another mental health issue. We need to cause this cultural shift sooner than later and it starts by teaching our children better habits than we were taught. It starts by learning more compassion for those who are challenged with mental health issues. And that can be on a range of areas. So the cultural shift that I want to create is changing the mind view of what dementia is and how people live with it and how others who are not living with it can prevent it from ever being part of their lives. Just yeah, making yeah. deliberate changes. Yeah, you know, and being that role model for children, I have seen um, the interactions between individuals with dementia and with children, you know, and that um, kids tend to have a, a, a natural inclination toward compassion. And um, that, you know, that, you know, helping a child understand, you know, what their grandmother, you know, is going through and, mm-hmm. and being able mm-hmm. to, to help the child, um, you know, not only have compassion, but also to, you know, to view their grandparents and also to, to how to act um, more humanely in society in general. Um, yes. would, I would think, be the, um, I've seen it happen, and, you know, but it's one of those things where I think sometimes, you know, people just don't 
give enough attention. I mean, they're kids. You know, what are kids going to do? <laughs> you know, all kinds of things. Right, right. Versus recognizing they're kids. You know, they can do a lot, not only for mm-hmm. the, the person with the, with the disease, but also for the, their own mental health. Exactly. We're living in a different world now. Um, it's not just mm-hmm. technology that's changing. It's the human mind. And we want to make sure that we're changing in healthy ways. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jessica, this has really been a great discussion. Now, is there any, maybe any final words that you may want to pass on to people who are listening? I want to let the caregivers know that every little detail matters. We all have an opportunity to grow and change, but we have to have an open heart for it to happen successfully. And my heart goes out to every caregiver that is dealing with trying yeah. to do more than just survive. Mine my, my too. It, it's a, it is a challenging yet very often rewarding um, activity. Mm-hmm. That, that we go through. Yeah. So, well, thank you very much for your time today, Jessica. I really appreciate it, and um, I'm sure that we will be talking about about your your story and, and book um, later on in my show. So, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. I enjoyed our time together. Thank you. Thank you very much. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Jessica Cannon, and we've been talking about her new book, The Proactive Caregiver, Stop Reacting to Life and Start Living Proactively. And again, you can find out more by visiting her website, which is www.jessicalizellcannon.com. That's Jessica, L-I-Z-E-L-C-A-N-N-O-N.com. Everyone, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, Visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.